Welcome to the Fish Tea Podcast, where... Talk about LGBTQ politics, pop culture, growing up in the Caribbean, life in the diaspora, and the work it takes to sustain love, life, and laughter in the midst of all the white noise. I'm Glenn Roy. And I'm Lanvel. We're giving you everything, honey. Get into this mug. We're serving you a hot cup of fish tea. Uh, what Beyond what? Beyond what I see on the socials. What's happening? <laughs> um, I've been good. The semester starts tomorrow. Okay. Um, so I'm on the last lap. Um, hoping to finish strong, but yeah, I'm back in school tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And then by January, I should be out and done the final one. Nobody cannot get me to go back to school again. But yes, it, like yeah. nobody did for so you true. Well, that is that true. That is also true. <laughs> that is also true. <laughs> I just want to do the PhD. Anyway, I will not be going back to school. I will do a little short course. I'll read a few <laughs> books and stuff. I'll, I'll do the, the readings. But you're not getting me going back into a formal education system. Not at all. Oh, what am I doing? What am I doing up there? <laughs> you, no, no, no. You think it... Mm-mm, mm-mm. PhD? You know, I follow the, the PhD um, hashtag. There's a PhD hashtag on Twitter. I heard about um, that. To be to be honest, the stories maybe... um. The, the well we won't reveal our guest as yet but maybe her story of doing um was different but honest <laughs> to god that that hashtag the stories i hear and having my my very good friend who is in a phd at ue glenroy the answer is no <laughs> the answer is no but glenroy yes to you and i know say you interested in doing the phd I know that there's no age limit to do the PhD, but 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 what? When are you going to? Oh, so you know, so what? All right. So interestingly enough, (laughs) our our guest is the person that kind of threw a wrench into some plans that I had for where I would do it. She, she, we, we met each other. We bumped into each other at an event, and I was strongly warned not to do it where I originally planned to. Um, and so I'm still figuring out, um, one, what my focus would be. Um, and I haven't really had the time to read all the articles I was set to kind of narrow it down. And two, uh, where I would do it. Because then after um, my conversation with her, I had another conversation with a, with a colleague of mine um, who's pursuing the same kind of PhD I was, I'm interested in. And mm-hmm. she's having a uncharacteristically good experience for where she's doing it. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, hmm, maybe, maybe it would work out for me. So I'm still figuring all of that out. And plus, as you know, the battle work very destructive, very destructive. And maybe I try sickle down everything with the move. I know all of that is settled. My life is seemingly in good order, seemingly. Um, so hopefully I can give more focus to personal matters in the years to come. I always sit up to now and it never works out in my favor. But there's going to be a more deliberateness, deliberateness going forward to make sure that I prioritize 
the personal goals I have for myself. Don't want me to it though, but make a try. And that is what matters. It's going to be in Wait, no, you say it on the podcast. So <laughs> everybody will listen to the podcast. I hope they write it down. I remember that on October 2nd, 2022, Glenn Rice said, we are, we are going to hold it to it. Looking forward. <laughs> but anyways, no dilly darling. Let's get straight um, into it because I just need to it anyways. Nothing's not going on my life, but usual. Except, no, I lie. Let me say this. So I went to um the second iteration of the dog ball and Gatilla and Villa and Mr. Oh, I saw I saw video. Big up Paris. Paris always I do the live them. Paris <laughs> always I keep if I wanting Paris I go, go live and Paris I go make one know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so the 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 dog ball once again it was it was it was lovely. Um they they were exploring some new categories this time around. Um they did Sex Siren, um, and they did, what was the other one? They did Opulence. And there was this Ooh. one, I don't know her name, this one girl that was doing Opulence. So first of all- yeah, she, hat. That was the one in the black, in the hat? No, no man, it's the girl that had the, she had the fur coat, but she was she was dripping in jewels and she had Ooh. like a beaded bra. Um, and it was it was everything. But anyway, so she's a finalist, of course, because she's giving, you know, opulent beach resort wear, everything. And then for the finale, like she's letting the girls do their thing. Paris was a finalist as well. And Paris was giving everyday opulence. I'm going to the supermarket, so I'm gonna wear like Givenchy just because I can. But mm-hmm. my girl takes out a glass. No, we are, for a second, you know, we're thinking, oh, this is a glass of champagne. She's serving it. She's serving it. Um, and then she throws the glass on herself. And we realize it's not champagne. It's glitter. It's like silver glitter that matches like her, her adornments. And then it falls in this very artistic way on her face and all over her body. She had to win the category. Ooh. <laughs> and... For sex siren, the girls came out. The girls came out. I got a lap dance. It was everything. <laughs> it was everything. Um, so I just want us to keep doing this, keep doing more of these kinds of events. Because I feel like the more the community prepares for them, like the better the quality will be. As yeah, and, and it's not like people are terrible, you know, it's just, you know, people are still learning. One, the traditional ballroom framework, and then, of course, our Jamaican twist on ballroom. Yeah. So yeah. once people get that, I think we're going to be in a really good place in the next yeah. year or so, because for the first two balls, you know, things really went well. Yeah. But anyways, that was my aside, but it was really nice. I mean, can't wait to come back, Landvin, and at least get that if you come back, and at least <laughs> <laughs> get to go to two balls and see what the girls are giving. But on to the topic of the day. Um, so today, listeners, we're having a lovely chat with um, a colleague of mine, a brilliant person that I'm glad I met back in 2019. Um, right around the time when um, we, they were working on um, this particular research that we'll be discussing. Um, and so we have with us the Director of Research from Capri, um, Dr. Diana Thorburn. Um, and before we even start talking about the research, we're going to talk about her PhD journey to give us some insight. <laughs> um, but yeah, she is an amazing um, 
researcher, also her Instagram page, I put the books and the travel and everything. Yes, I'll be seeing it. It's about with a bag of things. Um, and it's just great to kind of have somebody like that who just knows so much about so many different things. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Thorburn. Welcome, welcome. It's glad to, we're glad to have you. And also, I didn't say what we'll be talking about. We'll be talking about the research that Capri did back in 2019, which is the economic and societal cost of sexuality-based discrimination. So welcome, welcome, Dr. Thorburn. Thank you for having me, Glenn and Manville. I'm a fan of the podcast. I've actually learned a lot listening. Um, you know, it's really invaluable for somebody like me who is, I guess, I think you call me an ally, <laughs> um, to to learn uh, what some of the less obvious issues are and also some of the juicier things too. That's fun. <laughs> um, but yes, thank you for having me. And I'm delighted to talk about the research. You asked me about my PhD journey first, um, which I'm also happy to share about. I was listening quite intently to your Lanville's strong declaration that he's never going down that road. <laughs> and then uh, kind of talking about maybe doing it sort of kind of perhaps one day, uh, you know, non-committal commitment to 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 doing it and I always welcome the opportunity to get to participate in conversations with young people about this because you know having I did it I completed it and I think there's a lot that people don't know before they get into it and I'd say there's probably three things one is are you really sure you want to do this? It's for most people doing a PhD happens at the prime income earning and childbearing years and trying to do the a PhD properly and keep your sanity and actually enjoy it, which you should and do either of those other two things, much less all three is pretty much a recipe for disaster and you're most likely not going to be able to do it. And the thing that's probably going to suffer the most is a PhD. I saw that happen to several of my cohort, as well as, you know, some of the PhD students above and below me, uh, women who went and, you know, they're in late twenties, early thirties, and, you know, th it was time. And they never finished or they finished years and years after time to have a baby. That is, if I'm not being clear. So I'd say that's one thing is that you really make a big sacrifice. And if you're being really practical about it, if you look at income earning graphs, it goes up to a master's and then it goes down after that. So you, your income earning potential with a PhD actually is less than with a master's. So you're not only sacrificing these crucial income earning years, you're also not going to be rewarded for it by any bigger salary than you would have had as a master's. That's what I mean, obviously there's exceptions to that, but that's what the general, the general statistics um, say that and it takes a long time. Yet only 50% of those who start, and I'm talking about the US, I'm not even talking about UE. That's a whole other conversation, except to say that don't do your PhD at UE. And I can I can justify that. And I would say it on a stage at UE as well, 
I would I have no apologies for saying that. Uh, but as I said, that's not a different conversation. I'm talking about in the U.S., which, Glenn, if you were going to do it, I would strongly encourage you to go to the U.S. and do it. I think that their, their doctoral system is superior to the U.K.'s. I can't speak to the rest of Europe, but certainly to the U.K.'s in terms of the knowledge that you come out with. And yeah, you just come out, read the, just the way the system works. You leave there knowing a lot. You know, you can really feel like an expert in in whatever your discipline is going through the U.S. process. But in the U.S., only 50 percent of all those who start finish. And in the social sciences, the average is seven to eight years. And that average is skewed by the economists who usually finish in two to three years and the anthropologists who finish in like 10, 11 years. So I was right smack in the middle. It took me six years from start to finish. I did have to do a lot of master's requirements um, for the first year of my program, which many U.S. schools require. If you don't have your master's from that university, they often require that you uh, do uh, some of the master's classes Um so I did basically a two-year master's program in one. And I was also very glad for that. I learned a lot in that program that has served me well since. So that's the first thing is, do you really want to do this? Are you really, you know, what is it that is, you know, is your life going to be un- incomplete if you don't do it? Is it because you want to have a doctor in front of your name? If that's it, do some online theology PhD somewhere. You'll get the doctor in front of your name and it's not that hard, right? Uh, So be very clear that this is what you want to do. (laughs) Am I being too real here? No, we love it. Not theology. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's the first thing. Uh, The second thing is the way you go about so if you decide okay say you decide you're going to do it now right and again i'm talking specifically to the u.s system is how you go about choosing where you want to do it now the beauty of the u.s system is that when you get into a program in the social sciences they take care of you you get your you know you don't pay tuition you get uh stipend sometimes it's quite generous i remember one of the things that was one of my kind of turning points in leaving UWE because I was lecturing at UWE for several years and I eventually left academia was when one of my students had gotten into a PhD program at Emory and his graduate student stipend was more than my salary at UWE. And I was like, no, this is just not, (laughs) this is not... (laughs) I can't do this anymore. So once you get into a program, but the 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 key is to identify the program that is right for you. And there's a specific way to do this. You, well, Glenmar said he's not sure yet what he wants to focus on. Once you know what area you want to focus on, it's usually quite specific. You find who are the main thinkers and authors in that field. You find out what universities they're at what department they're in and you start communicating with them and that's where you apply. Graduate departments in the U.S. accept students who are going to further the work of the department. Uh, professors get take on students as they're um, to supervise people who are going to 
be doing work in their own field because they want to see the field extended and developed. If you end up somehow doing a PhD somewhere that your area of interest is not theirs, it's going to be torture because you're not going to have any support. You're not going to have the resources you'll need to do the work you want to. You're going to have to be looking elsewhere for proper supervision because when people don't know a field, to be able to supervise a student in a certain field, you have to really, really know that field. It's it's kind of like going to an endocrinologist when you have a dermatology issue, right? They're not going to be able to treat you properly. Um, and it's, it's a similar thing at that level of study. So you want to choose your program very carefully, and there's a way of doing it. So Glenn, when you're ready, you and I can work together on that. The final thing I would say is choosing the dissertation. Uh, so I did my PhD at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, which is in Washington, D.C. I absolutely loved it. It was like greatest time of my life after my master's at St. Augustine. But um, and when I was in Washington was the time when Richard Bernal was the ambassador. And he had coincidentally had a relationship with the school because he had done the a master's in public policy, which is a career pro you know, mid-career professional, even though of course he wasn't mid-career, but he didn't love learn. So he was, he did sign up himself for the program. And of course had, so he had a relationship with the school and, you know, I had reached out to him when I got there, you know, I'm at size, blah, blah. Didn't know him at all before that. Anyway, one day must have been in my second year now. So I'm starting to get my my dissertation proposal ready because in the US system you defend your proposal before you actually can go ahead and write it and he called me one day out of the blue of course I'm like why is the ambassador calling me I frightened you <laughs> have I done something he said Dana what's your dissertation topic and at the time it had something to do with gender and labor market competitiveness in South America I can't even remember it was so complicated what the topic was. So I'm there trying to explain to him what I'm doing. He's And he cut me and he said, that's way too complicated. You need to find something simpler. I'm going to call you in three weeks and you're going to tell me a different topic that is far simpler than what you're doing. Best advice I ever got. I ended up doing a really straightforward topic and straightforward in the sense that methodologically it wasn't complicated. It was very, you know, I knew exactly where to go to get the information I needed. And also importantly is that my supervisor was able to help me by getting access to people to interview because that was right along his the lines of his own work. And so, you know, it wasn't the most exciting topic ever. I can't say I was in love with my topic or I felt like I was going to change the world with my dissertation, but I got it done and I got it done quite painlessly. Uh, I finished in decent time. I didn't want to commit suicide at any point. I didn't have a nervous breakdown at any point. And, I, you know, overall, I had a really great PhD experience as a result of that. And I can understand there are a lot of people who will finish a PhD and feel really bitter. Like, why did I do that? And these are the ones who actually finish. The ones who don't finish just feel guilty for the rest of their lives. They feel like a failure. They feel like incomplete, unless you're really resolved. And then the ones, a lot of people who finish are like, why did I do that? That was, you know, a huge waste of my time and my energy and so on. So those are the three things I'd say about, about the PhD journey. Uh, and yeah, I'm happy to talk about that anytime.
nuggets of wisdom. Thank you again. I, I do remember you saying a lot of this to me, but I think you added some very important elements. Has your mind been changed, Landville? No, no, no. Man, remember I said that I have a dear friend who, as Diana said, do not do PhD Yui, who is at Yui. And from that journey, I would never venture, I would never <laughs> venture into um because as I think professionally, I don't need a PhD. Um, so it goes back to your first question, because why are you doing it? And I, I professionally, I don't need it. So it, it wouldn't make any sense to do it. But Lanvel, just be clear, the UE experience is nothing like the US experience. Nothing. To completely different universes. So, so, so don't judge, make a decision based on your UE friends experience, please. I'm making it based on the PhD hashtag. What I want to, I want to ask, um, um, that jumping into uh, the research, like mm -hmm. I've, I've heard the, the, the term state sponsored, state sponsored homophobia a lot, mm -hmm. um, but never really understood um what it really means and i know um it was referred to in the study um specific to the the recommendation that was given about uh repealing the offenses um against the person act um so what is um this state-sponsored homophobia that we talk about did we use that term in the study it 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 comes in the recommendation section so when you talk about repealing um yeah no i know the recommendation but did we actually use the term state state sponsored homophobia i yeah that state sponsored homophobia yes oh god i have to look for that i don't remember that at all i mean granted it was four years ago and we've done like 20 other studies since yeah so it's 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 it, it says um this discriminatory law but um validates um universal human rights and is a symbol of state-sponsored oh not homophobia sorry discrimination my, my bad oh okay i was like my bad i was like my bad my bad my bad that is not capri language my bad um well, let me just first, let me just backtrack a little bit, and I appreciate you want to get into the research just to give some context to the study. Capriza, you know, Caribbean Policy Research Institute. Not everybody knows who we are. I don't take that. I don't assume that we are a independent public policy think tank based at UWI Mona. Our mission is to provide evidence based research to answer pertinent developmental societal policy questions. We do work in the areas of governance, the environment, the economy, and social issues. Though as you can probably tell off the bat that often those themes overlap. So this study, which was the economic and societal costs of sexuality-based discrimination would have crisscrossed both uh, societal issues and economic issues. And what we sought to do was to put a value. So, you know, almost a neutral value on what discrimination actually costs us, that we discriminate against people and we pay a price for it. This, you know, we attempt to do our research on areas that we feel are pressing policy problems or questions. 
And we chose to do this because we had a sense, and I think we still have that sense, that there's a shift going on in Jamaica in terms, and I think, Glenn, you referred to some of the data, the function that we were at the other day, that is showing a very minute but measurable shift in attitudes. You know, as outsiders, not even looking at the data, you know, and just me as Diana person living in Jamaica, to me, the shift is more than minuscule. I think maybe the data is, is only marking it as small. But to me, there has been a noticeable shift in, in Jamaica in the past 10, 10 years, 20 maybe, but certainly the last 10 years towards greater acceptance. Uh, I'm not even going to call it tolerance because it's more than tolerance. It's greater acceptance um, and less, less homophobia, for want of a better word. And so we sense that there was a policy window, meaning that there was there would be a receptiveness to information and knowledge that doesn't previously exist about something which may then help to uh, that would have more receptiveness as well as kind of be part of what we perceived as the zeitgeist of greater a greater understanding and a greater desire for understanding of what it means that uh, for us as a country that we uh, continue to discriminate and what it might mean if we discriminate less, essentially. And, you know, we did come up with a number figure. We came up with a few number figures for, you know, of what the cost is. I think the primary one is that discrimination could be costing Jamaica $79 million annually in several areas, you know, kind of put that that sum together based on productivity losses, migration losses, uh, a whole host of different things that we were able to measure, most of them using proxies or most of them using uh, measures done elsewhere, just, you know, because we didn't have the actual data here, uh, losses in business because of homophobia. And then we also had an, you know, the other number, which is regard to discrimination, which is a co total cost of treatment, which without discrimination would we'd be spending 424 million US less if it wasn't for discrimination. So there's there's different ways in which to measure uh, this cost, and those were I think two of the main. Uh, numbers, values that we were able to come up with that we felt confident enough to put out that this is what the research has found. And so in the recommendations, the recommendations were geared towards minimizing those costs by reducing discrimination. Hence the recommendation of repealing the act. Um, and I think we called it sp state-sponsored discrimination because this is not, you know, that's this is one area of discrimination that is overtly clear that is within the power of the state to change, which is a legislative change. You know, other changes are not within the realm of the state. The attitudinal changes, for example, uh, some, you know, to some extent they are, but also there's many things that the state can't, there, there's no state policy that can make people, uh, I don't know, something random, um, overcome their, uh, their prejudice against uh, people who are obviously 
homosexual, right? There's a, there isn't a state policy that can directly do that, maybe indirectly, but this is a direct uh, policy change that would reduce discrimination. Right. Um, so thanks for the context. Um, so for me, the question is, um, and, and I guess it's a more broader question about the attitude of policymakers to research. Um, and I ask this because I know, um, you know, having been following the work of Capri more intently since you guys worked on that particular research paper, um, a lot of recommendations have come out. I mean, when, when we look at things like um, the study on gang violence and, and the mere fact that most of the violence in Jamaica is gang-related violence. And there are a whole host of other studies that you all have done since. I don't know when to find the time. Um, and so my question is, um, has there been reception in different parts? Um, and, and, and what has that been like? And I guess the follow-up to that, has, is there a difference with the reception for um, in terms of this particular study um, as opposed to the others that you guys would have done? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's one that's asked of many people and organizations that do policy research is, well, what, you know, is there any impact of this research on actual policy? And I would say for Capri that there are, in, I would say there's three ways in which we see an impact. One is we'll see a direct policy change. That doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And it's happened consistently over the years, Capri's 15 years in, in, in existence, where we have seen a direct policy change that we can trace to our study. One was in uh, the, a big one, actually, probably a year too, too young to remember, but back in the, <laughs> back in the, I think they call it the arts when Jamaica and early 2010s, uh, Jamaica did something where basically made a policy shift towards divesting state enterprises because research that we had done showed that the majority of our indebtedness was not due to government spending, uh, fiscal spending, but on supporting the contingent liabilities that state representative state entities represented. So things like divesting Air Jamaica, divesting the sugar industry, uh, some of the other smaller ones that didn't really make the headlines. Doing all of those divestments came out of research that we did that showed that if we were to get rid of these things, our debt would reduce dramatically, which it did. <laughs> so that's a big one. I would say another one that we saw direct impact, again, I don't know how you, you might be too young for these, for this Glenn, Glenn and Lanville, but there was, were you around during OLINT and Cash Plus? Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Quite, quite clearly. I mean, I okay. have friends whose parents were involved in Cash right. Plus. Right. So there was a serious fear that the inevitable collapse of these entities would cause, uh, whether it was a run on the financial system or some kind of financial system um, crisis. And so there was a genuine question in government as to do we need to prepare for a bailout of these of these entities? Yeah, you know, this is especially coming right after the late 1990s um, financial sector crisis and the bailout that we have been paying for ever since. 
And we did a research where we were able to determine with a really sophisticated methodology, people's level of exposure to those pyramid schemes. And we're able to determine that even if everyone lost everything, it would not require government intervention. And so that was also another. So, so basically the government was able to know that it would not have to make that move. And that was actually also picked up by the IDB and its recommendations to other countries that were experiencing large scale pyramid schemes like we had had here. So, you know, all of us know people who lost a ton in OLINT and Cash Plus, but we were able to determine that it wasn't going to have a, a impact on a marked impact on the economy, broadly speaking. So that's um <clears throat> that's one another direct one. Another more more recent one is NHT. We did research on the NHT showing that unlike most people thinking NHT actually does not benefit poor people, it actually diverts resources, transfers resources from poor people to better off middle-income people for their to give them subsidized mortgages. And, and recently there have been a host of policy changes in the NHT. Uh, the Prime Minister himself said this was like a pre-recommendation from a report that we had done. So that's one way. So we see a direct change that we know is directly related to the port report. Another way is we notice we notice a policy change that is suspiciously coincidental to something that we may have said or recommended. Uh, we may also notice a change in the discourse that is reflective of something that we had in a report or part of the discussion of a report. This has happened particularly with the, the gang and scamming reports that we did that you were just mentioning, Glenn. The those were completed 2019 was 2020 was a gang report 2019 we did one on with there were two it was under one big project called the citizen security a yard we did a one on it was ostensibly on august town but it was really about social interventions and another on scamming i remember the social interventions one that one ruffled feathers <laughs> Well, it's not only ruffled feathers, but it has started something that I think is really significant and important, not just because it was research that we did and we influenced it, but what we came up on was a really serious, um, oh, how would I describe what it was? A scenario that nobody had been questioning. And that was ripe for questioning and not just because, oh, we need to question this because nobody's questioning it. But it, the, the, the failure to question that scenario has real costs as a society. It is costing us and there's a huge opportunity cost as well, because in continuing to pursue anti-violence interventions that we don't know what their outcomes or effects are, when there is no macro change in any indicator such as shooting and murder we are clearly missing the opportunity opportunity to pursue interventions that actually might have an outcome right so that was one where we definitely saw and continue to see a shift in the discourse and i don't want to say there's been a shift in the policy because even though 
the minister and others say things now like, oh, we're only pursuing uh, evidence-informed interventions. They're still pursuing interventions that are not evidence-informed. So, so the, the discourse has changed. We have not yet seen the actual policy change. But, you know, a lot of these things take time. The scamming and, you know, things, the scamming report, maybe two or three years on, we started to see, notice that things had changed. There weren't any big policy announcements, but many of the recommendations we had made, we realized, but hold on a second, they made changes to the laws that allowed them to extradite people much easier, which again, you know, those, those could have been coincidences. It could have been that we just happened to do the research at a time when those changes were incipient. And so we first did them, but there was, there's no, you can't, you can't deny the correlation between a lot of the changes in scamming initiatives, anti-scamming initiatives since our report came out and what was in our report. Uh, and gangs, you know, I can't say we've seen a change in policy, but I have heard Minister Chang make speeches and I have to go back to our report and it's, there's almost word for word repetition of what we've said in something that he has said. So again, we know there that we have impacted the discourse, if not actual policy. Uh, and, you know, there are, you know, there's a possibility that policy change will follow a, a shift in the discourse, uh, but there's no, you know, there's no guarantee to that. With regard to this study and several like it, this one is more of kind of the third way in which I see that we have an impact, which is a kind of subtle, more imperceptible uh, impact where there we sense that it has reached people and we sensed and we sense that it has uh not necessarily changed the thinking but it has influenced thinking on the issue in in a in a, in a quieter way so to speak I think we we feel this way about the abortion report as well, that these are both very delicate issues. Um, they should not be, but they are. They're very delicate issues in the broader political context of Jamaica. And there, but that there are people who we would want to have influenced, but who can't who are not going to come out and speak. Oh, the Capri report said this and this and this because it's just not, you know, the political capital that they would spend having done that is not worth it. But we think, or we would like to think that their thinking has been at least nudged by the work that we have done and the findings and the recommendations so that, you know, if this were true, how this would manifest would be in, you know, some issue related to the act or other LGBT related issue coming up and a policymaker knowing in their mind that, you know, it really doesn't suit us to pursue, to, you know, to continue with things that are clearly discriminatory and are perhaps discriminatory, mm -hmm. kind of like almost like a, a subconscious almost, mm -hmm. um, Similarly for abortion, you know, that study really showed clearly the huge societal and economic costs that are paid because of lack of access to safe abortion. 
And again, you know, there hasn't been an overt policy debate about it, you know, aside from the little furor that was created when the report came out. But I'm pretty certain that a lot of the a lot of the findings from that report are in people's minds that there is actually a cost and not just not just public health cost, not just economic cost in foregone foregone labor market participation and productivity. But there's also a cost to the children of women who are forced to seek unsafe abortions, which is, you know, a whole other dimension of cost. Right. So. It, do we have an impact? We think we, that we do. We think we see it in different ways. And we think that for this report, that even though we, you know, we can't point to any big policy debate in parliament or a specific uh, policy change that has taken place, we do think that it planted a little seed in, in, in the minds of, of stakeholders, decision makers, policy makers, and politicians who is who we want to reach when we're promote when you know when we're proposing policy change. Having said that, I would say that there is a lot of scope for more advocacy. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not an advocacy organization. We have actually tried <laughs> doing advocacy and I think we've pretty much come to terms with the fact that being an advocate is a whole other enterprise than doing policy research. It's it's an enterprise unto itself. It requires a skill set and a staff that is different from what a public policy think tank does. It's yeah, it's a it's a whole different thing. And while we would like to do more advocacy, we don't have the capacity to do it properly. You know, we, we can do a little thing here and there, but, and, and I say that to say that, but this report in particular, I think that we might have seen a greater and more noticeable impact if there had been a concerted advocacy effort around it. Mm -hmm. So what I will say, because, you know, as you were talking, a couple of things came ahead before I asked another question is, so first, what I will say is, you know, because of how JFLAG does their work, we this is one of the, the research papers and, and we really appreciate it because sometimes a lot of the research that we commission gets kind of tossed aside as, you know, the idea that we influenced it because we commissioned mm -hmm. it. Um, and then here you have an independent body that comes out with a very, you know, insightful and critical piece of work that, challenges people's minds. So we use it a lot in, in different dialogue um, mm -hmm. that we do. And I think I think that's sometimes a part of maybe what's missing in civil society in general is that I don't know the extent to which all actors um, kind of pay attention to the, the research papers that are coming out from entities like Capri and others and just you know general research and how they can incorporate it into the way that they do their work. Um, and then the other part of it is when you were talking about kind of the imperceptible change, it kind of just brings me back to in general, just how a lot of times the work that we do is as an organization, it's, you, you kind of know you're, 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 you're adding something to the, you're pouring water into something mm -hmm. 
But because it's water, you're, you're not readily seeing it until years later you realize, oh, but the tank is full, mm -hmm. right? So I think I think it's very easy to, and even Lando can speak to this, like it's very easy to not realize the shift you're, you're making when you're close to it and you kind of have to divorce yourself from it and realize, huh, you know, this is the difference. So I, I totally get and appreciate um, that. So I had a question, but I wanted to know if Lando wanted to jump in. Yeah, I, I wanted to, because uh, I, I know <clears throat> as part of the study, you'd have spoken to um, to queer Jamaicans who would have left. Um, and just because the issue of um, brain drain and migration has been a lot, Twitter has done a whole dissertation on it. Um, I wanted to get just based on the information and, and I know one of the, the persons that you spoke to spoke about um living two lives in Jamaica um navigating and negotiating their lives um daily but and I know migration is a big thing for the general population in in Jamaica um but how do we and there are more people seeking asylums um each day don't have the data but we can see that there are LGBT Jamaicans who are leaving um in general, how do we, in a sense, either from this study, try to, I'm not sure if any of them would have said if the conditions in Jamaica were different, they would have stayed, um, but how do we keep the people who are really an asset um, to the country, including LGBT um, people? Yeah, this is a tough one, Lanville, and I am saying this because we are doing another study now on basically why so many tertiary educated women migrate, because tertiary educated women disproportionately migrate compared to tertiary educated men. So in any in any pool of 100 women migrants, emigrants and 100 men emigrants, uh, more of them are going to be women. The, the greater proportion of the of the women hundred women are going to be tertiary educated than the proportion of hundred men who are going to be tertiary educated, and it's a tricky study that we're doing because tricky in the sense of coming up with clear a clear understanding of what are really pushing people to migrate. It's you know you. If, if we were in a situation where hardly anybody was migrating from Jamaica, only LGBT people are migrating, then you could say with greater um, confidence that they are migrating because of the homophobia, the hostile environment that they face in Jamaica. Uh, and similarly, if only tertiary educated women were migrating, that tertiary educated men weren't at all, then you would say, well, they are migrating because of the, the gender pay gap. That's what this other research is about, the gender pay gap. And But the problem is, is that it's confounded by the fact that every strata of the population, every so, however you want to, to slice it, every demographic group, every socioeconomic quintile, they all make up the pool of people who migrate and always have so trying to isolate out of this you know ongoing wave of migration and when i say ongoing jamaicans have been migrating since the 1920s 
right? You know, there may be uh, greater, more in some years than others. We may be able to distinguish uh, certain push factors in some instances and others, broad ones, the 70s being the most notable. But looking at smaller micro groups within the larger population of migrants is hard to really be confident about saying this was why they migrated. This in particular was why they migrated. <clears throat> and the, then the question is, well, what could be done to have made them not migrate? If they are to say that they have migrated because of homophobia, which many do say, then the obvious answer is, well, Jamaica should be less homophobic so they won't migrate. But might they have migrated anyway because you know, a good job in Jamaica that's going to be able to get you to buy a house and a car is really hard to come by. So it's it's a trick. That's a tricky one. That's a less clear one, and it's a it's a question that bedevils not only this this issue of homophobia and LGBT migration, but many other issues related to migration. Migration migration studies in general are methodologically tricky, and. <clears throat> Sorry, those of us who have lived outside of Jamaica for any period of time know that it's a complicated thing, you know, to where you choose to, to live. If you choose to live here, you choose to live elsewhere, what you lose and what you gain. You know, some of it is quite um, philosophical and metaphysical. It's not only about I can earn more money here or about I feel like an alien here, so I'm not going to stay you know, there's a lot of compromises and uh, give and take in in anybody's decision to stay or to leave or to come back or to stay over there. And so this is a tricky one in terms of, of, of this study. So, you know, anything we might have, have said here is that, yes, the homophobia is a push factor, but we can't say for certain that among LGBT Jamaicans who do migrate, that that is the overriding factor, but it may be one of the factors. That actually accords with what we saw in our needs assessment that we did around the same time that um, people desire to leave for a range of reasons. And I guess the difficulty is qualifying or quantifying the extent to which this is the I guess the name or major reason for your your decision, which can become difficult when you're, you know, especially since it's self-reporting. Um, but I wanted to ask, um, in coming to the decision to do this particular study, um, were there any fears, concerns, challenges um, that were perceived as, you know, that would make it more difficult? Um, because I, I imagine that those are some of the questions you ask yourself, and I. As far as I'm aware, it's the first from Capri around the around you know LGBT related issues. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, there wasn't any fear. One of the privileges of being independent, and when I say we're independent, we're independent not only of the university, but we're independent even of our funders. Capri is funded largely by the Jamaican private sector. And they don't have any influence or say over our research agenda or our findings. And we are very, very fortunate to be in that position. We don't take that, uh, we don't take it for granted 
both the support of the private sector, because we actually have an organization that is sustainable where we don't have to be worrying about if we're going to be around next year, but also in that they not only fund us, but that they fund us with no strings attached. Mm-hmm. They're quite happy for us to just put their logo up at the end of our, our, our forum and say thank you to our do- to, to our funders. And the other funders, of course, are donor partners who fund most of our research. And I, you know, many of them are probably the same ones who fund uh, EFJ, mm-hmm. Equality for All, JFLAG. And they welcome this type of work. You know, they this is progressive for them. They are so so we wouldn't have had any issue with regard to our core funders or the funders of this particular research, which, which was a European Union. Uh, I, the other the other privilege of being fully independent is that we're not depending on the public to like what we do or public opinion to approve of our topics for, our, for us to continue doing our work. We are able to maintain an independent voice because we're not tied to any particular agenda or any particular interest. And so we're able to pursue research topics such as this, which might be, are supposedly controversial, but we can still do them because we are going into the topic knowing that this is a legitimate policy question. There are legitimate policy questions here that need research to be answered so that we can have evidence to answer them uh, correctly or confidently. And we're able to to pursue that the, the research and the question without being hampered by anybody because of our independence. This together with the abortion report are probably the two most sensitive topics that we have ever done. So we recognize that they're sensitive. We recognize that some people might think that they are um, controversial, but we are quite secure in our ability to do the research impartially that it doesn't, it's not going to stop us from doing what we have set out to do. Uh, I I am looking forward to this other study that we are working on with you guys on the role of the church to see what the reception to that is going to be. (laughs) The abortion report had your friends there, Glenn, the ones, what they call themselves again? Um, The Coalition for Healthy Society? Yes. (laughs) They had them putting on their on on their website pictures of us taken from our website that we are agents of the devil and (laughs) so on and so forth i said look no (laughs) i'm on my church's parish advisory council i do not have no fear from you (laughs) right um and yeah so we're looking forward to seeing what that will be but even if there is a quote-unquote backlash against what we're doing, we do not publish any report or say anything that we are not extremely sure that we have the data, the evidence to back us up. That's not saying that we're always right, but I'm just saying that anything that we put out there, 
we are going to be able to defend it. Okay, so I have one last question, and maybe and maybe Landon has one, and then we can wrap up. And my question is because you just mentioned something very interesting. I'm curious, like um, you do, you know, you do when you do this kind of work. Of course, you know, people might who know the work that you do might say, "Hey, um, why would you do that?" or something like that. And I'm thinking. Is, is that a conversation you've ever had to have, particularly, you know, being a part of, you know, somebody who's of faith and you, you see you're on your, your, your one of the boards at church. And so um, is, have you ever been confronted, even outside of a faith space, with persons kind of questioning your intentions behind being a part of looking at controversial issues? I would say when we did the abortion report, we had questions from people who we really respected. And so it made us think, like, why would you take on a topic like that? Why would Capri get itself into controversy unnecessarily? And it made us really think just because of who that was coming from. And, you know, having thought about it and discussed it among ourselves, we we felt that that person was actually wrong, that we should have taken on that topic, regardless of it being controversial, because it's an important issue and it's an important societal issue and it continues to be an important issue. We were actually a little surprised at the lack of response to the to this study, to the uh, sexuality-based discrimination study. And our conclusion as to why there wasn't a backlash is because no, there wasn't really anything to argue with. Like it was so, you know, the research was so, plain and straightforward that you do this and this is the cost and it came without an agenda it came without any ideological um frame to it that it was very objective and even the haters or the coalition people would have had a really hard time finding something in there to say this is wrong or there's anything really objectionable in it. So that's, yeah, so we do, you know, we have gotten it, as I said, including from people whose opinion we respect, but we have not yet felt we shouldn't have done that. Which is great to hear um, from the perspective of, you know, us who benefit from the fact that you do you did you did something of this and you know we're working on a couple of um a couple of you know research efforts to kind of expand because as you know we're we believe in the research being research driven at all times and I think all of these are coming right as we're about to reorient the work that we do at um JFLAG um so that we can say okay what else do we need to be taking on? But um Lanville, do you have any questions before I wrap up? Um, I, th I think my final question would be, I know you, you spoke about and maybe one of the, the biggest markers of success for you and for Capri in general as an organization would be if the the recommendations so the, so the recommendations are used to kind of guide um, policy. But specific to this research, and I know there, there are no more recommendations, one of the biggest one being the repeal of the burglary law, but there are other smaller ones that can be tackled. Um, for civil society organizations such as JFLAG, um, JASL, who works in HIV, and I know one of the recommendations or one of the biggest things looked at HIV, what more do you think um, so that this re report isn't just 
sitting on the shelf, what mm -hmm. more do you think that civil society organizations can kind of do to kind of ensure that the recommendation, the recommendations that they can kind of tackle, um, bullying, anti-discrimination, those are kind of acted upon and those are kind of made more known to um to political actors and persons who kind of, you know, guide policy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. I would say the re the recommendations are still relevant. They're not time bound. Uh, these particular recommendations, other recommendations we make for other reports will be time bound. Uh, what could be done? Well, I'll say one general thing and I'll say one specific thing. One general thing that I have learned, I slash we have learned over the past few years of doing this work is that it is more efficacious to choose one thing and work on one thing than to take a, whether it's a, a call, what some people call a comprehensive approach to something. So when Glenn and I went to this event on Thursday, I noted that one of the objectives of the event at the embassy was for the embassy to come up with a comprehensive plan to tackle the issues. And my thought was, we don't need no more comprehensive plan. We need focused, targeted things that try to change one important thing. Because we have so many comprehensive plans for so many things. And what ends up happening is nothing, absolutely nothing. So that general observation leads me to the specific thing is that other civil society actors who are who consider themselves stakeholders uh, that are would be party to this type of work, that they choose one one recommendation that they are going to work on and they're going to commit to doing it consistently with an advocacy plan of some sort, whatever the nature of their organization is. You know, it could be targeting government policy, it could be targeting the JTA if they're going to be working on bullying, it could be targeting youth groups, whatever it is, that they're going to choose one thing and they're going to work on that one thing with a clearly defined strategy and plan. So, you know, any of these recommendations could be picked up by any relevant stakeholder and carried forward, whether as an advocacy effort or as a program effort. But my my suggestion would be just just choose one. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. You've been a fountain of knowledge to us both on the PhD journey side, which I know you weren't expecting, um, <laughs> but also just, you know, in general, in terms of, you know, making sure the work that you do is one, evidence-based and two, thinking through how you can operationalize that in meaningful ways. Um, and so we just look forward to seeing more of this kind of work coming from Capri, um, mm -hmm. not just necessarily on LGBT issues, but on just general, you know, human rights related issues that falls within the social issues um, section of your work. Um, well, I'll give you a little teaser of our two studies that will be coming out before the end of the year. Okay. One, one is on the, the cost, the actual value of unpaid care and domestic work. Ooh. Uh, teaser, it's a significant portion of our GDP. Mm. And the other one is why we are experiencing 
lower unemployment without commensurate economic growth. It's a phenomenon called growthless jobs. So that's the, those are the two things that we're going to be launching before the end of this year. We're really excited about them. I'm particularly, I mean, I'm interested in both for different reasons, but I'm particularly interested in the second one because yeah. it's kind of something I've been eyeing. Like, mm-hmm. yes, the BPO boom is real, but like, <laughs> what is happening in terms of the lived experiences of people? Yeah. The construction boom is real, but what 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 is what is really happening for people in Jamaica um, who ought to be benefiting from this boom? So. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm gonna be re- I'm gonna be glued to that one to kind of come <laughs> out of it. Good. All right, thank you so much, and thank you to our listeners um, for staying tuned. This was more on the educational side; it's not the usual carelessness, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> none of the juicy stuff today. <laughs> we were proper academic in the room out of myself. Um, so thank you, thank you so much for tuning in. As always, you can. Um, send us your feedback at Fish Tea Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and, and on Facebook, or you can email us at fishteapodcast at gmail.com with your feedback. Realize that nobody not talk about monkeypox no more. I don't know what happened. I don't know if it just dropped and I never hear about it, but we don't really hear nobody at talk about it, so I guess it's no longer an issue. No, it is. There's more and more cases. They're just not being publicized. Mm. Well, there you go. But do what y'all need to do. Take care of yourselves. I'm usually going to the rundown. You're supposed to know for the band now. Um, and as I always say, stay sophisticated. Bye. Bye. <laughs>